Good day and welcome to the U.S. Pharma Field Links call. Today's conference is being recorded. As a reminder, all participant lines will be muted until the Q&A session. Instructions will be provided at that time. You may also send your questions via pigeonhole.at, passcode fieldlinks2, at any time during the call. And now I would like to turn the conference over to Victor Bulto. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, and uh, good afternoon to everyone, and uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Uh, just a, as a reminder and to just frame the discussion that we're having today, uh, as part of the uh, year of the field surveys, uh, one of the things you told us is that you wanted to have more opportunities to strengthen uh, the links between the field and the different functions and the different areas of leadership here in headquarters, and, and this is... Uh, one of the answers to that question, right? So we did establish um, uh, this call uh, that we call Field Links, uh, and in every one of these calls we want to tackle you know, a different area. Uh, we did have uh, Liz Four and Paul Kokcha uh, doing our first call talking about culture and career development. So hopefully you found that uh, uh, of, of a good use of your time. And, and today we have uh, one, uh, one uh, very important topic, one very important topic in the agenda, which is around uh, market access and, and U.S. policy, right? And, and for that, uh, we have here in the room today Scott Howell, who is our head of market access and patient services. And uh, Scott, for those who don't know him, you know, is a thought leader in the area, has been a, a thought leader in the area for, for many years. And he's also an academician in, in the space, has written uh, you know, some articles in the space. He teaches on a regular basis uh, around market access and, and U.S. policy as well. And I hope you all enjoy you know, the, the, his, his session today, and he'll, he'll be ready uh, to answer any, any of your questions. Uh, just a reminder, we do have Pigeon Hall open. Uh, we'll be welcoming uh, your questions in Pigeon Hall and also over the phone. Now, if I just uh, uh, stop for a second and try to provide a little bit of context to this topic, right, it's probably one of the most uh, pressing and, and uh, topics right now, uh, given all the changes and all the noise that we hear around uh, policy and healthcare policy. Uh, and it's, I, I did share uh, with, with uh, all of you during, during the, the last town hall that somehow it's like standing in front of the, of the Wall Street bull, right? You, you have a very aggressive... Uh, opponent in front of you, moving very fast, not necessarily being rational in, in the decision-making, right? And actually, we're standing right in front of that bull. And that's what Scott Howell and his team are doing <laughs> alongside with us, right? Uh, and they're, they're trying to look that bull in, into the eyes uh, and being as fearless as possible and trying to anticipate what the bull's moves are going to be and what is the best way to react to that, right? And, and honestly, I'm sitting here really confident uh, because in those environments that are really complex and really uh, changing, uh, your best avenue is to have the best team in the industry, right? And that will set you definitely apart. Uh, in, in environments that are easy, uh, anyone can succeed. In environments like the ones that we are confronting, uh, you only succeed if you have the best team and uh, have tremendous confidence on the team that Scott Howell leads and the team that he has built over the last years. We are in a phenomenal place. And uh, today you'll get uh, a sense of that, uh, you know, as, as um, Scott
Todd shares some of his thoughts on the space, and, and, and please don't be shy on the questions. You'll see that you know, he, he will be able to address most of your concerns. So uh, without further ado, I think, Scott, I'll, I'll turn it out to, to you. Uh, and, uh, and then after, after yeah. your first initial introduction, I think we'll have some time for, for yeah. Q&A. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Victor. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll kick, some, kick the conversation off with some prepared remarks, maybe, and, uh, but we'll leave plenty of time for the questions as well and, and hope to get a good dialogue going. I've, uh, I've actually been getting invited to do a lot of this kind of speaking around our company lately. Um, I think the spectacle of what's going on in both uh, managed care as well as in the, in the government, frankly, has been a big draw. The government affairs folks, I think for years that's been the case for them. They always have the pleasure of going around and going to the different sales meetings and and uh, so on and, and sort of uh, poking fun, I'll say, at the process in Washington. It's, it's kind of uh, become good sport, and, uh, and now managed care is almost right there with them. We, I think, like to think of us as the second best soap opera on TV these days <laughs> behind the government affairs folks. So anyway, with that in mind, um, you know, what the heck is going on in managed care these days? Well, obviously, uh, our industry uh, is under intense public scrutiny and also intense um, market pressure. And the primary driver around this, as we all understand, is the higher prices that uh, we've had to charge uh, in the industry to support our business model. Um, there have been several drivers for that. I think it's really important to understand that uh, the industry doesn't just charge higher prices because it can, but actually because it has to. Uh, we're all in the business of continuing to educate our markets, which we all know takes investment, as well as uh, continue to invest in research and development and innovation for the future. That's what society actually you know, wants uh, from companies like ours. Um, but beyond that, you know, to support that, uh, there's some important structural changes that have occurred um, which have necessitated this higher pricing model. The first is genericization. Ninety percent of scripts in the U.S. now are filled with a generic medicine. That means nine times out of ten when a doctor writes a prescription, there's no money flowing back to the innovative pharmaceutical industry to support um, our R&D or our market education. The second big driver is the shift towards specialty and oncology medicines. You know, these are conditions that have tens or hundreds of thousands of patients, not tens of millions of patients. And uh, when that's the case, you just have to charge orders of magnitude differences in the prices as well. So that's a big deal and a big driver. <coughs> Third, it is true that around the globe, foreign governments are not paying their fair share. Um, it's just the way it is. And uh, we, we would like to charge higher prices in, in these other markets and have them pay more of their fair share, but the reality is they have uh, regulated markets that are controlled by the government um, and basically, you know, more or less set prices with limited ability to negotiate. And then, frankly, lastly, inside the U.S., even our own government is paying less and less of its fair share, I would say. You have programs like Medicaid, uh, 340B, uh, which, you know, both have highly mandated uh, discounts. Um, they have uh, formulary management sometimes on top of that with additional, you know, discretionary discounts required. And, um, and, they're, and they're rapidly growing. And so you put all of that together, and, you know, that's why prices in our industry over the last decade or more, you know, have been migrating upwards. Um, I would say I think we've done a pretty poor job, actually, as an industry explaining um, that to, you know, our various constituents and stakeholders. And, uh, and, and so particularly in managed care, 
um, they become frustrated and, uh, and and really kind of angry about it. It's, to them, it is the migration up in the prices has felt abusive. And so uh, with the hepatitis C category events a few years ago, when those products, great as they are, launched at much higher than expected prices uh, and, and a pretty substantial budget impact, uh, the payers got angry and struck back. And, um, and they did formulary exclusions. They used that to uh, pit the companies against each other, drive the rebates much higher, like 2x or 3x kind of where standard rebates were up to then. Um, and you know what? They, it worked for them. They, they got the price concessions, and they didn't, unlike the late 90s, when um, people said, I don't want an HMO between me and my doctor or me and my hospital or me and my medicine, that didn't happen this time around. They didn't get the, the backlash from patients or from doctors or from employer groups. And so uh, it, it worked, and they got away with it, and they just rolled from there from category to category. The PCSK9s were next, and Tresto was you know, after that, and it's just gone on. And now it's everywhere. And so they use formula exclusion, step edits, more and tougher prior authorizations, higher copays um, to manage utilization and to extract greater and greater price concessions. It's a double whammy for our industry because we end up giving huge rebates, um, which lower our net prices. So for every unit that we sell, we get less money. Uh, but then also the number of units that we sell gets suppressed. The techniques that they use, the prior offs and the high copays, actually drive down adoption and drive down adherence over time. And so it's a, it's a troubling um, problem. And now, as we all know, the government is more and more involved. Um, they're having the same you know, kind of budgetary problems, even with all the mandated uh, discounts and everything. Uh, and so they're looking for ways to uh, manage their own budget, and they're looking for ways to use this as a political topic to appeal to you know certain subsets of voters as well. So there's lots of action going on um, in D.C. these days. They passed a couple of things by regulation um, didn't require that didn't require law that you know basically Medicare and Medicaid could just directly do. And um, but those were things that. You know, in the scheme of things, they'll have some impact on our business, but not as much as some of the more draconian things that have been proposed more recently. And sort of the lucky, unlucky thing for us, I guess, is the current state of affairs of gridlock um, kind of interferes with some of these more draconian, most draconian things that oftentimes really are kind of political points more than they are real solutions um, from passing. And so we're, we're stuck with kind of, you know, Lots of vitriol, lots of uh, almost flagrant ideas, uh, but gridlock uh, kind of keeping the process from moving forward. Um, we at Novartis have certainly not been immune to this. Um, we have uh, suffered the consequences in the marketplace, you know, uh, and the forces, the, the raging bull, um, as every uh, company has. Um, our rebates have gone up substantially uh, over the last several years although less than uh, the industry averages. Um, our net prices have gone down. You, we, we all read about the list prices going up, and that's true. But uh, what we don't see is that the rebates are, are also going up, and the rebates have actually been going up uh, for us and for many other large companies as well across our portfolio uh, faster than the list prices. And so our net prices actually the last couple of years have been coming down and um, and so the you know the way 
the way that you have to respond and the way you have to play to win in that kind of environment is by growing volume. And so that's what we've been able to do. We've, I think we have done, as a company, we've done a, a good job of, of um, securing access um, where we need it and for the right amounts of investment, the right rebate levels, and then having excellent partnership between uh, the market access teams and the, and the field teams and the marketing folks as well uh, to pull that through because that's, that's how you survive this kind of game. And the, and the beautiful thing for us in market access is the more that you all can pull through the sales, uh, the more that protects our position inside the managed care plan. If you're a product with lots and lots of volume going through, it's a lot harder for them uh, to move against you. And quite frankly, the value of your rebates, a 20% rebate on a lot of volume, is worth a lot more than you know 20% of not much. Um, and so that's been a good thing for us as well. We have, you know, to your point, uh, Victor, we have undertaken uh, some initiatives in the market access department over the last couple of years to try to, you know, adapt ourselves to the harshness of this environment. Um, one of the things that we've done is we've become much more um, analytical and uh, focused on, um, you know, strategy development. The, uh, Novartis has had a great market access function for many years, uh, very experienced team, really good judgment, really good intuition, and uh, but one of the opportunities has been to augment that great experience and intuition with more use of facts and data and analytics. Uh, that's going on across lots of parts of our business these days, um, and uh, and certainly it's very valuable and, and highly leveraged in, in market access. Is you know we were looking at some figures earlier today, but if you literally can just save a point or two here and there on some key accounts, it adds up pretty quick in terms of the you know financial impact. So that's been one one thing we've done. The second is um, we've uh, we've upped our game in the account management as well uh, for the managed care accounts, and I would say especially around the large national payers, uh, we have um, uh, we've put our best people on those accounts. We have uh, and we have put uh, as you know high level uh, seasoned senior executives in charge of those teams focused on the most important accounts. You know very close to the business. So. Each of our national account, we have three national account teams um, only focused on three or four accounts each, uh, but the dollars flowing through each of those is just, you know, humongous. But, uh, and it's, you know, it's no big surprise, but the more you can focus and the more you can orchestrate and bring together all the resources that a firm like Novartis has to bear, whether that's in medical affairs or outcomes research, um, or outcomes-based contracts or, you know, our brand partners or whatever it might be, uh, the more effective you can be. And so that's been uh, very helpful to us as well, and we're going to continue that path and, and keep getting better at it. And then lastly, um, you know, when you do get the prescription, you sure want to pull it through. This is the conference lead specialist. We're experiencing an interruption in today's conference. Please stand by while we resolve the situation. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you. Thanks, operator. All right, we'll, we'll pick back up. I'm, I'm pretty sure, that, Victor, that that was uh, CVS that they had hacked our teleconference here, and uh, <laughs> cool. the bull is getting harder every, every year. So, um, 
Okay, but anyway, I was just saying, when you when you do get one of those prescriptions, you know, finally made, you sure want to get it filled, and you want the patient to stay on it as long as you can. And so, in addition to uh, upping our game around uh, use of data and analytics and strategy, and in addition to upping our game around account management, particularly the national accounts, uh, we've also, as you know, um, undertaken an endeavor to up our game in patient services, and uh, that's been going on since a little bit before I started here, actually and certainly continues. It's definitely a work in progress. We're making good progress. The reality is those programs are complex, and the vendors and operations and so on are even more complex. And uh, some days it feels a little bit like two steps forward, one step sideways, one step back. And uh, But in the big picture, uh, we are making good progress and um, and have and have some results to show for that. But it's it's endlessly frustrating, particularly to me, um, how hard our system has gotten um, for patients to to navigate to be able to get on their medicines and stay on them, and and so this is an area that I'm quite passionate about and very committed to making even better, making us really the best in the industry um, for the future. And so, anyway, the net result of that is, in part, as you know, some of the great um, performance results that we've been experiencing. Um, over the last several quarters, including those that were announced today, we've done very well with Cosentix uh, formulary positioning. We've done even better uh, with the Cosentix pull-through. It's you know it's growing faster than the category is growing by a substantial margin. Uh, for Mike's team and Entresto, uh, we've you know over the last year and a half or so continued to improve uh, formulary tiering, continued to improve getting the PAs knocked down. And the really good news from my perspective is, you know, over the, the last year or so, that's all really been done not through increased rebates, but actually through um, the use of more and better pharmacoeconomic and health outcomes data that our medical affairs colleagues have supplied for us. And they've just done a terrific job, and it's been a nice collaboration with that. Um, and some really good work, some of the best work I've, I think I've seen in my career. And then on the patient services side, we're, you know, we're – undertaking efforts really to make as much of that as we can uh, uh, technology enabled electronic you know real time self serve um, uh, activities here so you know we have we now are, have capabilities and they're in various states of rollout for the different um, programs uh, but capabilities to enroll patients, you know, online directly out of the EMR or through a, a common physician portal uh, that's used, uh, capabilities to do electronics ver benefits verification in the moment at the time, get a real-time response back, uh, capabilities to do an electronic PA submission uh, as well, and uh, all of those things have allowed us to, um, you know, make it easier. Uh, go faster and get more patients on therapy and keep them on therapy. Now, that said, you know, as soon as I say that, you know, again, I worry about how hard it's gotten. I know that we're not, you know, we're not where we want to be. And so we're going to keep working on that. As you know, we've got some plans over the next couple of years to uh, continue to push the envelope with our vendors, continue to push the envelope um, with the technology, uh, with the vision to, you know, um, becoming the best in the industry at this. Um, and then lastly, in addition to all this, you know, we are doing some uh, work as well to uh, not just adapt to all this stuff that's going on in the external environment, but also to try to shape it as well. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I'm 
grateful for the company support uh, that allows me to lecture on this stuff, speak on this stuff, uh, write on this stuff. Uh, we're promoting some ideas out in the market now, as you know, about what we call a trade of value-based prices for value-based access. The notion is that you know everyone wants pricing restraint from the industry. Well, companies that provide that in the form of value-based prices, um, and we can talk about what that means perhaps, ought to be rewarded. They ought to be incentivized and then rewarded with what we call value-based access, which is you know simple PA, no-step edits, and a reasonable copay. And I'm happy to report that Optum, uh, big PBM, just rolled out a value-based formulary uh, right along those lines. And uh, ICER, the big health technology assessment organization in the U.S., uh, has also adopted uh, this approach, and they've got their new tagline is fair, fair prices, fair access, sustained innovation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's too early, obviously, to call victory, <laughs> declare victory, but it's, it is at least encouraging to see, because this stuff's hard to move. Uh, uh, you know, all my years in the field, you know, what I've come to appreciate more and more is just how hard it really is, how complex it is, how dug in all the various stakeholders are. And <clears throat> so, but I'm, I'm glad, I'm really proud, actually, to be at a company that, you know, wants to engage on that and, and try to make it better for the future. So I'll pause there. We can we can take questions and, and go wherever folks want to go. Great. So uh, thank you very much, Scott. I think we can start with a couple of questions from the Pigeon Hall, maybe. Uh, we have a couple that are pretty uh, pretty popular here, and that, that should give everyone time uh, to basically add some questions into Pigeon Hall, have a look at the ones that are already there, and issue your vote. And we'll have the line open as well uh, for questions. Maybe we'll have the operator remind everyone what, what needs to be done for to post a question online. Uh, sorry, on on the line. So, operator, if you can just remind us of that. Absolutely. If you would like to ask a question by phone, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. A voice prompt on the phone line will indicate when your line is open. Please state your name and role before posing your question. Again, press star 1 to ask a question. We'll pause for just a moment to allow everyone an opportunity to signal for questions. Do you want to talk to me? Good. So we'll, we'll, take, we'll take the first one. And, uh, yes, Scott, we would love to have your, your perspective on, on the regionalization of, of healthcare. So the question is, as the healthcare landscape changes in the U.S., are there yeah. any thoughts on regionalizing our IC plan to reflect the different geographies? Maybe uh, I would ask you, Scott, yeah. you know, is that regionalization so, right? Are we yeah. seeing significant differences across uh, different regions? And maybe we can ask uh, Mike uh, Exxon, who is here, what is his take, right, on how we design ICs and, and yeah. how, how that should reflect that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, uh, so you know, on the regionalization question around managed care and access and all, uh, sort of both ends of the spectrum are true. On the one hand, uh, the U.S., the market is consolidating, you know, greatly, as we as we all understand. you got six or eight uh, plans, PBMs now, driving 75-plus percent of the market um, in many therapeutic areas. And those players kind of compete all over the country. And so, you know, to some extent, that's the 
the end of the spectrum that's moving towards a more ubiquitous, you know, kind of thing. But that said, we also all understand that it's it's not they're not their presence isn't smoothed out everywhere the same. And so some of them are stronger here, others are stronger there, and we may have differences in formularies between one and the other. And then it's also true, you know, earlier in my career, um, I ran the pharmacy program at Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield. The reality is, you know, if you're operating in you know Western PA, like you know Highmark, which isn't a, a, a national plan, uh, is the big driver for your local market. So the reality is, those those local um, uh, plans uh, make a lot of difference as well. So anyway, there's in the big picture, it kind of, a lot of it kind of evens out over time, particularly over time. That said, in the smaller picture and in, in moments in time, there are definitely going to be differences. But I'll go from there to Mike on the IC question. Yeah, perfect. Look, I think in principle, um, certainly for CV, and I'm sure it's for every franchise, in fact, um, with IC plans, our aim is to get every territory, let alone every sort of region, uh, to have an equal opportunity of hitting their... IC target. Now, that's very complex and, uh, and very difficult, and every trimester, at least in CV's terms, you know, we look, we readjust, where have we, uh, you know, potentially got opportunities to, to make uh, small adjustments to, to that plan. So, in principle, you know, the, the way we put it together should give everyone the same opportunity. Now, we recognize uh, uh, in my franchise, I'll talk to you specifically, but I know that uh, my colleagues think of this as well, that you know, there are very different regional healthcare structures. And in fact, in cardiovascular, um, just to give one example, uh, we've developed a completely different model for seven cities. Uh, Boston, for example, Minneapolis, for example, in Seattle, where we know that the healthcare is a very closed environment in those cities. It's difficult for reps uh, to get access to their accounts, um, and so the classic type of model um, wasn't working as well as what we thought it was. So we developed a completely different model. We call it the CVA model uh, in those accounts, and, uh, and in fact, we found great success in a couple of the launch uh, um, areas in Philadelphia and Long Island. Uh, and we're starting to see that success replicated in the later launch areas. So, you know, this is always a work in progress as the healthcare system changes uh, continually. We also continually look to see how we can optimise our IC plan with the aim, the aim always being giving a fair crack uh, for every single individual in independent of whichever geography they're in. Yeah, yeah hi. Um, so this is Paul Kosha. Um, so I, I had the pleasure of meeting with the sales executive team, the SCT, uh, last week and actually introduced um, an, an alternate model for IC that the oncology organization is exploring. Um, after the review of that plan, although we weren't really keen on what they were introducing, um, there was a lot of appetite for us to explore our incentive compensation system uh, at wholesale, right? Just completely um, look at it with a fresh set of eyes um, and and, and uh, there was tremendous appetite with the team. We formed a sub-team. We've got uh, Dwayne from the, the, the CV group um, acting as the, uh, as the lead for it. We've got individuals from IC and from the P&O organization. So um, it's just you know, early stages, but um, again, to Mike's point, these are things that we have to continuously look at as our, as our business evolves and changes. 
Um, so stay tuned for more uh, from the SET. Yeah, good. Want to go on? Okay. Uh, so our next question here it says, uh, it seems like pharma companies, uh, healthcare systems, PBMs were in, in an arms race when it comes to pricing and profitability. Isn't there a way to stop the madness? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is actually music to my ears. Uh, as you know, I, I describe it almost in, in like terms. Um, and, and the reality is we are in an arms race. Uh, my academic collaborator is a health economist, Jamie Robinson. He's a head of the graduate program of health policy and management at UC Berkeley. And uh, he describes it of, as the war of all against all, actually, and uh, that we're, we're all losing. Uh, but it, it is true. The, uh, the health plan says, you know, i got to figure out how to slow down that drug. I'm going to raise the copay. We say, well, we'll hire some FRMs and launch a copay card. They'll say, have you met my accumulator? And we say, well, we got one for that. And how about my contact center? And, and then the irony is all that stuff for both of us ends up getting repriced back into our business, our basic, you know, products and services that we offer. And, um, and it, is, uh, it is sort of insane in, on that way, on the face of it, right? But at the same time, we're all, all the actors are following the incentives that exist and the rules that exist um, in the way our market is structured today. And so it's, it's also logical you know, the PBMs are actually acting logically in their best interest and in the best interest of, you know, the employer groups, for example, that sponsor them and pick them, choose them, do the RFPs. Uh, and so, but the, all of us playing the logical end to, to the end of our games has stretched the whole game overall to where it's out of balance and it's almost become farcical. And um, and that's the problem. And, and I'm, I'm frustrated a little bit by what's going on in the, health policy arena, because mostly it's not about this question. It's mostly not about how do we make this better. It's mostly about how do we save some money for the government or how do we score some points with, you know, political sides or, or potential voters and, and those kinds of things. I was disappointed, actually. The most meaningful reform uh, idea that was in all of the things that have been proposed there was, you know, getting rid of the rebates. And, and that's the one that's been, you know, shot down and, and knocked out. Uh, and in some respects, because it can survive the politics uh, of it. Um, and so, uh, now that said, you know, you have to you have to kind of keep a long-term view, I think, um, and not give up. Uh, I think what happens in, in D.C. as it relates to policy and regulation and law on this stuff is it comes in moments in time when um, situations and politics align. And so an example would have been, the development of the Part D program under the Republican administration, the Bush administration, you know, in the mid-2000s, more recently, the ACA with the Obama administration. But, you know, a window opens in time where it's possible to get something through the government and uh, that could change something meaningfully. And, and what happens when those windows open is the policymakers, they look for ideas on the shelf. And so... And they wonder, like, could that work? And then it gets pulled into the debate, gets pulled into the analysis and into the political negotiations. And so I don't know whether or not we're going to get much more past this time around. You know, there's a lot of gridlock lock, like we talked about. And um, But however this window in time closed, this problem is not solved on the other side of that, and and it will reopen. And, and I, the way I see it is between now and that time, 
we as a company, we as an industry, we need to get some better ideas on the shelf so that when that does reopen, the policymakers can. And that's where, you know, better pricing and access, the, you know, the trade idea of, hey, if I give you your better price, you give us better access, I think is a leading one for that. And so we're pushing that. And actually, Scott, if I can ask you a follow-up question on this, right? Something we, you and I have discussed a couple of times. So the drug uh, expenditure actually to around 20% of the overall healthcare spend, right? And, and it still attracts most of the discussions, both from the policy perspective and, yeah. and from the public opinion perspective, right? So what, what is your opinion on that, particularly given that the per capita cost of medication is actually not far off from the yeah. per capita cost of medication in other countries, right? So, yeah. so how, how does the, the whole thing play out? Yeah, so, um, you know, you can, if you measure drug spending in the U.S. as a percentage of overall health spending, it's been stable as a percentage back into the early 1960s, basically as long as they've been tracking it. And, um, and what that means is it's, it's, in, it's going up at the same rate as everything else in healthcare. That's the good news. We're no worse than the doctors and hospitals and everyone else. The bad news is, you know, nobody can afford it anymore. Uh, the you know the average family premium now has crossed the twenty thousand dollar a year um, threshold, and and half of the folks are in high deductible health plans. So in addition to the twenty thousand, you face a you know two three four five six thousand dollar deductible, and um, and so for the average citizen voter, it feels like every year I pay more and more and I get less and less covered, and eventually someone ought to do something about that. And so that's the problem that we're all in. We are no, no worse um, than the others. And in some respects, uh, we get picked on because actually our prices are more visible. Um, our list prices in particular, that's why they're such a shiny object for people to point at. Um, you know, good luck trying to figure out how much an MRI is going to cost, you know. Um, and... Uh, so it's easier to point at us. And then secondly, we're a juicier social and political target as well because we're a little more amorphous. Everybody, every local politicians, every community, um, you know, knows the doctors in the community. They know the hospitals in their community. They appreciate that stuff, and, and so they're a little bit protected. And so we, we are a bit of a punching bag, but we're caught in, you know, forces that are bigger than us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We have one on the phone, Tina. I would let's ask the operator. Yes, Sandy, do you have any questions on the phone? Yes, we do have three of them. Great. We take the first question now. Please state your name and role first. Hi, this is Barb Heim, Field Sales in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, the field, we appreciate all that you're doing to help us be able to help our customers and help their patients. One of the things you touched on was the electronic verification of benefits. And I'm just wondering, do you have an update on that yet? Because that was truly amazing how that worked, and it really helped the uh, offices be able to know before those patients walked out the door if Entresto was affordable or not. And I know for some time it's been down. We just haven't heard an update. Oh yeah. So um, yeah, thanks for that. The uh, so the capability is there, and this gets back to sort of the mess of that healthcare is. Um, but they're competing. You know, in order to be able to run an electronic BV, you have to access the pharmacy adjudication system. That uh, guess what is controlled by the PBMs, and so uh, 
Uh, and so they're happy, you know, like when their own membership needs to use the system to do things. They're less happy when companies like ours through our vendors are accessing it you know, for our purposes of helping, you know, patients navigate all this stuff. And so there's recently been some conflict between some downstream vendors that has inhibited uh, some of our vendors' ability to access the system. I don't know the exact status of that in the moment. My sense was it I thought it was actually back up and operating, but maybe that's not the case. Yeah. No, uh, thanks, Bob, for the question. So um, we do have an alternative system. Yeah. We've got an alternative access to the data. The front end isn't the same. It's not a yeah. sort of cover my meds yeah. front end, and it's a little more clunky than what we've had. Um, but it's a good reminder. So we do have a system that's up and running. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, but I'll take that on board to make sure we send out another communication uh, reaffirming exactly what the steps are that your customers need yeah. to take. Good. And then, and then I would just add Thank you. Yeah. And I'll just add, we're, we're now we're expanding that capability over to the other brands as well. Uh, we've implemented it uh, actually with the launch for Mazent, um, and uh, we're looking at Cosentix, um right now. Uh, but we think really that's that's the way really all of this, as much as possible, should be initiated. Mazent's a good example. We're getting half of all of the total referrals now are coming directly electronically. Submitted, no, like no fax machine, which is like a miracle in medicine, right, in, in the U.S., but half of them are coming directly through the portal or through the EMR. Great. Thanks, Bob. Hope all as well as in Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Can we have the next question on the phone? Absolutely. If you find your question has been answered, you may remove yourself from the queue by pressing star 2. We take the next question now. Um, yes, this is Susan Schroeder um, a, out of Arkansas for the Mazent team. This call, it's been very informative. Um, my question is kind of two parts. Can you speak to the Canadian system on their medications? Um, I've been told that from Canadian physicians that they don't allow um, jury trials, and that maybe that's one of the reasons why their um, medications are supposedly, you know, a lot less. And the second part, um, what effects do you think will be um, upon the U.S. allowing the importing of their medications to the United States? Yeah, good. Thank you. Okay. Um, so the Canadian, at a high level, I don't, I don't really know uh, much about the jury system trials there or whatever, but I would say at a higher level, just as it relates to the way the pharmaceutical industry works there, is it, it works like much of the rest of the developed uh, world in, in that it has a central, generally a centralized government purchaser or set of purchasers who, you know, quote unquote, negotiate a price. Basically, they, they say at this price, you can have access to the market. And when you look at that across the globe, even in the developed world, if you look at all the products um, approved in the U.S. and with access to the market over about the last five years or so, only about half of those are getting adopted in other developed nations. And so, uh, that, so that trade-off there about access to innovation definitely exists, and, and we should all understand that. And in this case, you know, the Canadian citizens certainly understand that and have to live with that. Um, now, that said, it does create an opportunity for parallel trade, for reimportation, you know, as you just uh, described. 
Um, I, in, to me, as a policy matter, that just seems nutty. Uh, the reality is, you know, when you do that, you're just importing someone else's price controls. The supply chains for the drugs, as we know, are already global. Um, and so you're not requiring necessarily, you know, that's not what you're after, the supply chain. What you're after is I just – so if we really wanted to set prices in the U.S., I would say, well, we should just do that on our own terms, pick our own benchmarks and all that sort of stuff rather than, you know, rely on Canada or anyone else to do it and have an honest debate about it, the pluses and minuses and all that. But anyway, that aside, uh, the reality is – our market is so much larger than Canada or most of these other developed nations that it wouldn't work on a large wholesale level for us to – we would just empty all the pharmacies in Canada in like a day and a half, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then you just wind up with, you know, some really serious problems uh, that would quickly uh, become problematic. And so uh, I don't actually believe that reimportation – Make sense as a policy solution, and I don't believe as a practical matter it's it's a logical solution broadly. Now, that's not to say, again, that in certain moments, you know, some politician in Florida or Maine might not say, I, I want that. Uh, they, they do, obviously. Great. Um, can we get the next question on the phone? And then we'll go back to pigeonhole. Absolutely. Please yes. Yes, hello. Uh, you guys can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, this is uh, uh, Adrian Hawkins, uh, Immunology Account Manager, New York City. Uh, uh, Scott, the question that I have is uh, you, you mentioned patient services, patient navigation. Um, as you can imagine, New York City has a very diverse patient population. So as it relates to the diverse patient population, uh, example, Hispanic, Asian, and or underserved, what is being done um, to improve health outcomes when it comes to patient services and or patient navigation with market access? Yeah, thanks, Adrian. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, there's, there's a tension between sort of what's needed in the market and everything that you can do and would do to try to serve that, and um, what operationally and financially, you know, is feasible, um, frankly. And uh, and everyone in healthcare that's worked in healthcare lives that tension every day. You know, when you walk through the doctor's clinics, it's happening there. When you walk through the hospitals, it's happening there. And it cer certainly happens, you know, for us uh, and our patients as well. Um, we do have... Um, programs where, you know, we adapt our educational materials for uh, different populations. We have uh, programs where we train our um, PSLs and PSCs and uh, our, uh, our partner vendors, you know, in the hubs um, uh, around all these kinds of issues and, um, uh, and the resources available for these kinds of things. I, I think we do a responsible job as a company, um, you know, certainly at least uh, in my experience and compared to a number of places I've been. Uh, and I also recognize at the same time that uh, the need is great and um, more would be wonderful. 
maybe I can say something about this. Hi, everyone. It's Ronnie. You know, I think that we have seen across many different uh, uh, services in the community that technology is actually democratizing. Yeah. Democratizing services because it's easier to do it at scale, different languages, different types of services for different people, and adjusting all of that. And, and both me, me and Scott are very passionate about actually taking a, a really serious uh, attempt here to uh, up our game. And I, 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 you know, we don't know actually. We both, both of us, don't know if you know how it's going to work and how it's going to play. But we are definitely going to invest much and to see if we can really democratize the services that we give and give it to many more uh, of patients, of, of our patients. Good. Thank you. So maybe there, there's another question here, uh, the, the following one on, on, on generics, right, on how U.S. policy continues to force generics uh, and, and, and about how, you know, the... Um, Actually, Novartis includes generics in, in its formal area, right? So, mm. so maybe uh, in general. So, as, as Scott mentioned, right? So today, nine out of ten yeah. uh, products are generics. And, and actually, you know, just to clarify, as an organization, as Novartis, we're fully on board with that, and we believe that actually generics are part of the solution yeah. and not part of the problem, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Scott, so what, what is your what is your thought on that and uh, and, and, you know, we're forcing a generic on employees when a branded pharmaceutical is, is the lifeblood of our industry. So how can these two, you know, uh, yeah, work together. live together? And why do we own the, one of the largest manufacturers of, of generics? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it, it, our business model is it's a funny one, right, where, you know, for many years we invest in research and development, and, and so we have negative net revenue, net income from that. And then you, that's followed by, you know, an approval and commercialization, and you have another subset of years where you're on the market and, and you have some pricing power in the market, kind of depending on how much competition you have and how much management. But that's your window to make some money. And, and then it goes generic. And at that point, generally speaking, the prices come down and they come way down, and, uh, and you really, you know, aren't making money or not making much money. And... Um, uh, that uh, model has actually served uh, not just our industry well, but really I think society well and patients well for quite a long time. And, and the notion is just what you said, that the generic events free up money that was being spent on old technology and make that available, you know, kind of within the same pharmacy budget for some of the newer technology. And so you have this virtuous cycle. And it actually, if you think about it, um, over the last, if you think about it, like over the last 50 plus years, pharmaceutical spending as a percentage of total healthcare spending has been stable. And, and you think about all the advances that have occurred during that time, it's absolutely amazing. And, it, and, and no other part of healthcare can make the same claim. I would argue, and I'm a physician, I practice medicine, I was a general internist for a decade, you know. The practice of general internal medicine has not made the same kind of advances uh, for the, you know, for the same kind of money uh, over that time. And I think that's true generally. So anyway, we, I think we should be careful uh, as an industry, you know, and, and, and certainly as policymakers before we sort of disparage the cycle of investment, commercialization, and then genericization 
um, too much and, and before we're confident we have something equally good uh, that will replace that. Now that said, the reality is the, the incentive for the employer group, as you know, in the moment is, I, hey, I do want the innovation, but I also want the freedom, you know, to be able to afford that. And so where I can get the better deal, I want to get the better deal. And so uh, it's naturally in Novartis's best interest as an employer to do that, just as it is in, you know, General Motors or the teachers union or, or anyone else. And um, uh, and so I, I, I view it as um, sort of a natural cycle, something that uh, frees up money actually for uh, newer medicines and uh, continued investment in the uh, innovation for the future. Uh, and at the same time, though, something that, you know, where I worry about it is uh, where we have to compete. We're, we're competing against the success of our past as an industry. We got all these medicines out there. It's like, you know, are you better than the Beatles? You know, they were pretty good. Yeah. And, um, Isn't it five bucks? Lipitor, five bucks a month forever and ever after it goes off patent. That is a screaming good bargain. It is a great value for society, and the cost per quality on that is, you know, better than breakfast. <laughs> and, um, and it doesn't get factored into, you know, the cost effectiveness of when the medicine was branded. We don't think about it that way. We only, you know, we only do it with the branded ones. But the reality is you're going to have that thing forever and ever. And so, anyway, the system's, in many respects, it's worked really well. It does, it's been stretched, and we, we need to address that for sure. It's not socially and politically sustainable at this point. And, um, uh, but, it, you know, you kind of can't blame employers for, you know. Yeah, it's that. kind of our contract with society as well. It is, right? That's so a good we, way to say we, it. Get, we get a protection from a patent perspective for a given time to recoup our investment. After that, it's a bargain for society, and that's part of what should make us proud that's uh, right. about what we do, right? It does make us proud. Yeah. Uh, Good. So um, I think there's, there's another one that maybe between uh, Scott and Mike you can address. There's a question on, uh, on um, have we thought about sending a survey to the field to see if any of the MBO positions such as SOC, HAS, Field Capability, Coach, MSL, or PDI help drive business and remove uh, the barriers? Mm, yeah. Um, well, I, I can speak to some of the stuff in market access. The... Uh, uh, you know, so the managed care account managers, I would say, you know, clearly, I mean, their whole focus is really uh, removing the barriers. I would say the same uh, is true for the field reimbursement and managers and the, and the ARMs as well, and, and also for the PSLs and PSCs. And we do, we do do surveys for some of those groups with the field teams, not all of them, and we certainly get uh, informal feedback from the field teams on all of them uh, as well, and we, we try to use all that input to better target, better optimize, you know, get the mix right. Uh, I'm sure, you know, there's always room to improve, but we're, but we're always open to that and working on it. Yeah, I think it, clearly this is a, a CV question because uh, all of these relate to, uh, to my franchise. And um, it's a really uh, interesting idea. I think we should uh, adapt that. We have mechanisms uh, through each of their various functions to measure their performance, obviously, um, in various ways, uh, not sales-related and driven a lot by MBOs and other things. And, uh, and we get a lot of informal feedback, just as you were saying, Scott, um, 
you know, across all of these different uh, different positions. But uh, I take the spirit of the question because something that we believe very strongly in for CV, and I'm sure it's the same in all the other franchises, that it's only when all of these different components work together that you truly get an effective yeah. collaboration and the best performance. And, you know, that's really the ideal that we're searching for. And I think a, a survey of our uh, field-based people to really assess, you know, are they getting the best support from all of these uh, from all of these functions uh, would be a really good idea. So I appreciate the, the idea and it's something I'll take back to my leadership team. Yeah, I like it. Yep. Should we do one more? Sure. Yeah. What would you like? Um, <sighs> Top one, Joe? Okay. Is there a way to get a consistent picture of local managed care? We find inconsistencies between the multiple reports we see, Rapid, Aspire, uh, other payer, payer benchmarks. Yeah, this is this has been one of the challenges in the industry actually, you know, for decades. Um, the uh, it has never seen a perfect solution. The um, generally speaking. Um, I think the best solution is, and the one that we use here for much of our work, I can't say for sure that I know that it's for all of our work, is um, starting with uh, one of the vendor services that tracks this stuff, uh, tracks uh, policies and tracks formularies um, and creates uh, reports, and, and then double-checking that with input from our account managers in the field and say, hey, these are your accounts. Does this look right to you? Um, and so that's, that's the kind of communication that we endeavor to report, particularly when we're working on um, the market access and sales pull-through efforts that I you know, mentioned earlier, and um, use that kind of information for those things. Um, and otherwise, I think you, you just have to, again, kind of live with some lumpiness, I would say, unfortunately. There's no, no perfect – and the reality is beneath it, uh, there's endless complexity. Uh, there, I mean, you know, when I was running the pharmacy program at Highmark, we would literally customize the formulary for basically any employer. If any employer said, I like you guys, but I, I want, you know, these two additional birth control pills on the formulary, I want this additional non-steroidal or that additional antidepressant or whatever, we would do it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we literally operated thousands of formularies. You know, we, it gets rolled up in the aggregate, and it's, you know, pretty much mostly like one formulary and what matters. But beneath it, there's, like, endless detail, and it's, it, there's no good way to capture that. And there's no data system for that. And so we do the best we can with the, the benchmarks that are out there and then overlaying our own account manager knowledge on top of that. Good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Scott, I wanted to, uh, to start by or end by, by thanking you uh, for, yeah. for your time My today. Thank you. It's always exciting. It's always tremendously educational and eye-opening to, to discuss with Scott about these, these issues. As, as you can all see, he's tremendously passionate about it, and, and he's in a position where he can you know, truly not only have an impact within Novartis, but also shape uh, the thinking out there in our environment. And, and for that, we're tremendously you know, grateful uh, to, to have him, you know, working on our side to, to shape all these all these uh, challenging uh, years and that we have ahead uh, that we have ahead of us. 
Uh, I also wanted to thank you all for for participating in the call, and 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 also also realize a couple of things, right? Uh, I think uh, the first one is you know the importance of these calls to make sure that we're close to your reality and the challenges that you face, because you're the face, you're our face uh, out there, you're our face, uh, you know, uh, in in the external world, and you. Uh, have all these magical touch points every day with our different stakeholders. So I think the least we can do is just make sure that we understand what your challenges are, but also uh, you know, bring the best experts to keep you updated on what is the current level of thinking and what is the reality that we are facing collectively out there. Uh, so thank you for that. And maybe I'll, I'll close with uh, another reflection, right? So, uh, Scott, you describe a, a very challenging environment. Uh, ahead of us, right? This is probably the most complex that it's ever been, and probably it's less complex that it'll be next year and, and the year after, right? So, but at the same time, you know, I, I walk away from this call with, on the one hand, tremendous confidence on, on the team that, that Scott has built, both on the access side and the patient services side, right? I see win after win, and I see, you know, how the team outperforms and outthinks, uh, you know, the payers, the BBMs, but also our competitors again and again, and that makes me tremendously proud. And also I walk away with, uh, you know, the tremendous confidence of having an amazing field team that actually, despite all these challenges, yes. and with Scott's team, managed to drive volume, exactly. as you said. We just you know, presented Q3 results, and we posted a 15% growth in the U.S. this quarter versus yes. last year. So tell me, in the last 10 years, how often, as an organization in the U.S., we grew 15%. Yeah. And that's a combination of great assets, right, because yeah. we do invest in research and development, and that yields. We do research. Uh, we do invest in M&A, in BDNL. Uh, we do invest in having the best teams out there with the best tools. And I know, we know that we're still not 100% there, but you have our commitment. And we invest in the best market access teams and other supporting functions, and that's the recipe for success. And I am tremendously confident that as things get tougher, uh, we will only race to the top, and we will see more and more players actually collapsing uh, in, in face of a complexity that they cannot deal with. But uh, I'm more and more excited about uh, you know, what's, what's ahead of us. Uh, and with that high note, I, I wanted to thank everyone again for joining. Thank you for the US PEC here present in the room, and thank you, Scott. Again, for your wisdom and, and your tremendous uh, efforts. Uh, thank you. Have a great afternoon. This concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.